Good evening and welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host, and doing our audio engineering tonight, we have James Johnson. Here on the show, I bring you stories from teenage perspectives, specifically in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines. The program highlights local, regional, and national STEM stories with young people and respected experts in their fields. Joining me today is Dr. Nancy Sagel, renowned evolutionary psychologist and behavioral geneticist. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. That's great. And thank you for making the time for WDIY. Now, before we dive in, could you share with us some background on you, your early years, and education? My name is Dr. Nancy Siegel. I'm from New York City originally, but I'm speaking to you from California. I'm a psychology professor at California State University, Fullerton, and I'm also the director and founder of the Twin Studies Center. My area of expertise is twin research, genetics, environment, evolutionary psychology, and child development. I got my undergraduate degree at Boston University and my master's and my Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. And before coming to Cal State Fullerton as a professor, I had the pleasure of working for nine years at the University of Minnesota, where I was associated with the famous and very exciting Minnesota study of Twins Raised Apart. Wow. And what initially sparked your interest in the field of psychology? Had you always been interested in it from a young age? I was always interested in psychology from a young age, why people are the way that they are. And I think, Raina, that that stemmed from my being a fraternal twin. I have a fraternal twin sister. And even as a small child, I was so struck by the fact that we looked different and we acted so differently, had our own friends and interests. Even though my parents raised both of us and gave us many similar experiences, but we were just so different. And this really created these questions in my mind. How is it that despite environmental similarities, we just go in such opposite directions? And have you noticed that your sibling has also had the same interests as you? No, we have very different interests. My sister is an attorney, and that's a profession that I admire and respect but could never do. <laughs> wow. Um, well, what resources did you have access to during your high school career to pursue these interests? Well, to tell you the truth, there was very little in my high school along the lines of twin research. I did go to a wonderful high school in New York City, the Bronx High School of Science, and we took three years of science, biology, chemistry, and physics, all wonderful. But I never got into twin research until I was actually a senior in college. And what sparked all of that, I was a psychology major, what happened was I had to write a, a paper for an abnormal psychology class on any topic within the field of adjustment. And I wrote about how twins adjust to school when they're separated as children, which was always a very important topic to me. And I found that the literature just made sense. I was excited in a way I've never been excited by a topic before. And that's really what set me off in the twin direction. So the Bronx High School of Science, you said you went there, and they're definitely one of the most, um, one of the best high schools in the country. So would you say that resources in the field of psychology are still very limited? I don't know how it is now. I've been back to visit, and I think that things are certainly changing. I've been impressed by what the Bronx High School of Science has done. But remember, I was there many years ago, and psychology was not really a topic that they taught. And so we had much more limited resources than students today have. I mean, you're very, very fortunate. Definitely. So moving on to your award-winning research, what have you been investigating, and how did you get involved in such a niche field of work? I've been involved in twin 
studies, as I said, because of that paper that I wrote as a, a senior. But since then, I developed many projects on my own. I do my own studies of twins raised apart. I discovered a very fascinating group from China that were separated indirectly because of the one-child policy. So I've been studying those. I studied Chinese twins adopted together. I suddenly came across an amazing kinship that I call virtual twins, who are same-age, unrelated children raised together, who replicate twinship but without the genetic link. And then I was fascinated by unrelated lookalikes who replicate identical twins raised apart, but also they are not genetically identical. And so it lets you ask the question to people who look alike, behave alike, are they attracted to one another? And the answer to both of those questions is no. <laughs> it seems that as I go along, one topic leads to another, and I find each one more fascinating than the last. And why is observing twins so impactful to the fields of psychology? Well, the twin research design, the classic study, which involves comparing identical twins to fraternal twins in terms of similarity and a specific trait, is a very simple and very elegant way of looking at genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. And there are variations on that classic theme that we can get into a little later if you're interested. But what is so amazing is that not only are psychologists using this, but many, many fields like economics and industrial organizational relations and it's so many people are using the twin method to address questions that were unaddressed in that particular way before. You know, a genetic perspective was not popular in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It only got, began to take root in the 80s when genetic advances progressed the way that they did. And now I think the evidence is still too strong to ignore, although there are critics of twin research, I have to admit, people who don't cling to environmental explanations. I think the reason is that people have this misguided notion that if something is genetic, it can't be changed. What you have to keep in mind is that behavior is a function of a gene ex being expressed in an environment, and modifying environments could potentially alter genetic expression. And so before we continue discussing your work, could you go over for our listeners what the genetic and biological difference are between identical and fraternal twins? Sure. So identical twins result when a single fertilized egg divides between the first and 14th post-conceptional day. So these twins share all their genes in common, and they're of the same sex, two men or two women or two males and two females. They represent about one-third of naturally occurring twins. Fraternal twins, on the other hand, are the remaining two-thirds, and they result when a woman releases two eggs at the same time that is separately fertilized by two separate sperm. So these children share the same genetic relationship as ordinary siblings, which is 50% of their genes in common on average by descent. Now, there are so many interesting variations of both types of those twins. And I'll just mention one that I think may excite some of your listeners. Um, there are these unusual subsets of fraternal twins that are called superfecundated or heteropaternal. And what happens here is that if the woman releases two eggs at the same time, if she has sexual relations with different partners, those children could have different fathers, which then turns them into genetic half-siblings. So in other words, they share their mother's genes, but they do not share any genetic potential from their dads. And we don't know how frequently this occurs, but I've been studying some of these cases, and they are truly, truly fascinating. 
Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And what are some of the most interesting case studies that you've investigated involving the genetic similarities between these different types of twins? Mm-hmm. Well, the most exciting cases, of course, are the identical twins raised apart from birth who have no knowledge of being a twin, and when they meet, they show extraordinary similarities. The first pair of twins that launched the Minnesota study of twins raised apart are the pair we call the Jim twins. The Jim twins raised about 40 miles apart in the state of Ohio. Both uh, had workbenches around their trees. They both bit their fingernails to the nub. They both had mixed headache syndromes. They both uh, drove light blue Chevrolets. Uh, they both worked part-time at McDonald's and in sheriff's offices. And I remember that both of them had married women with the same name, divorced them, married women with the same name a second time, and then one of them divorced that woman and married a Sandy. So they had this long, long list of similarities, and some people think it's just pure coincidence. But the way around this, and I've recently written a paper that's in press to this effect, that you have to look carefully at the frequency of the similarity in the population. Now, as an example, another pair of our twins, uh, they both used Vadimakum toothpaste, a rare Swedish brand. How many people use Vadimakum toothpaste? And to find it replicated in identical twins apart is extraordinary. These same twins also used a very common type of hair tonic called Vitalis. That's no big deal. Half the male population probably used it. So if you start to weed out these common resemblances and stick to the more unusual ones, you do find these more often in identical twins than fraternals, which makes sense. So then, Raina, this gives you a whole new domain for looking at explanations. And if you think about it, all of us create our own environments. We gravitate towards similar certain people, similar certain places and certain events that are compatible with our genetic potentials, and we ignore others. And it's no different for identical twins raised apart. Within the normal range of environments, they too gravitate towards certain people, places, and events. And because they are genetically the same, those people, places, and events happen to be the same. And we do not find these in fraternal twins who are the perfect control group. So you kind of just went over this, but how can you control and account for the variabilities involved with these qualitative observations that are made in psychological studies? Okay. Well, in twin research, we do both qualitative and quantitative measurements. And so the way we try to control for it, let's talk about the quantitative one first, like IQ measures or personality scores. You use identical twins as compared to fraternal twins. We use identical twins versus adoptees. So you control for the genetic and environmental types of underpinnings. With identical twins raised apart, you want to control for certain elements in the home. Were the mothers both housewives, or did they both have access to certain types of resources? And once you can rule those out or control for them, then you can see if the genetics plays a greater role in shaping that similarity. And what's amazing, too, is that we find despite, say, differences in the twins' home atmospheres, whether it was a warm, friendly home or a rather cold and conflicted one, the twins seem to remember those homes in about the same way. So it may be that the twin who was in the conflicted home sort of filters through that and has a better recollection of what's a happy memory. I could go back, if you don't mind, 
I want to mention one more case study that is really quite spectacular that I think will interest your listeners, and that is the case of Oscar and Jack, who were also in the Minnesota study. They had the most different background of any pair of twins I know, and yet ended up being amazingly alike. They were born in Trinidad in the 1930s to a German Jewish father, I'm sorry, a Romanian Jewish father and a German Catholic mother. And when the couple split, the boys were six months old, and the the wife took one of the boys with her back to Nazi Germany, and he was in the Hitler Youth, and of course became very nationalistic when it came to his country of Germany. The other was raised as a Jew in Trinidad. He was sent to Israel to be in the Navy, and of course he was very pro-Israel and Jewish. And when they met, they had amazing similarities. They both thought it was funny to sneeze loudly in elevators, and they both wore lots of rubber bands around their wrists, and they both washed their hands before and after using the toilet. What was different about them were their political and historical understandings. Those were completely different, certainly embedded within the environments they grew up in. But they both knew that had their places been switched, they would have ended up embracing what they currently despised, which I think is really an extraordinary finding. That really is. Now, we're going to pause for a moment now to take a quick break. But when we return, Dr. Siegel will discuss her recent book, along with some of her experiences as a researcher. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist. WDIY News engages the Lehigh Valley with accurate, unbiased reporting from many sources with volunteer, real voices providing context and definition for thought. For WDIY News, I'm Sarit Lashinsky. For WDIY News, I'm Marcy Lightwood. For WDIY News, I'm Mike Flynn. Listen to WDIY News during Morning Edition. Fresh air and all things considered daily here on WDIY. Streaming on WDIY.org and on the WDIY phone app. Psst! Did you know that your phone is a radio? You can tune in to WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store and your phone will become your trusted radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY on your phone live and access your favorite music shows on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra. With me today is psychologist and geneticist, Dr. Nancy Siegel. Now, you have written seven books in the field of twin research, and your most recent one is deliberately divided inside the controversial study of twins and triplets adopted apart. What is this book about? This book is about a misguided twin study that took place in New York City in the 1960s. What happened was there was an adoption agency called Louise Wise Services, Their psychiatric consultant thought that it was beneficial to separate twins so they would not be in competition for parental attention and and parents would not be overburdened. That was a misguided notion, completely ignoring the beauty and, and celebration of being a twin. But at any rate, they were separated as infants, put into adoptive families where the adoptive parents were not told they were raising a twin. And 
This psychiatric consultant collaborated with the Dr. Peter Neubauer, who decided, well, the two of them together decided to study these twins, and the development was secretly tracked for 12 years. Parents, of course, had researchers come to the home, but they had no idea that their children were in a twin study. Ultimately, the twins did meet. They were all in the New York City area. There were many chance meetings, and these meetings got exposed. And, of course, families and twins were extremely angry that their lives had been so callously manipulated. And so I went and I found all the twins in the study. I found those that were separated and not studied. I also investigated a number of the people who knew the original investigators who were now deceased. I poured through archives that were open to the public, and I interviewed countless ethicists and attorneys about this topic. And so what I have is a general audience book that gives you a complete overview of this horrendous twin study, which, by the way, was a topic mentioned in the recent documentary film, Three Identical Strangers. And how did you manage the controversy that surrounded this topic? How did I manage it? I knew that when I took on this topic, it was going to be controversial, that not everybody would embrace this book, and not everybody would wish to talk to me. I had people to contact who would not talk, would talk off the record, would talk anonymously, or not talk at all. But I regarded that as information because it showed the discomfort with the study. And I knew that it was important to get this out because those twins and their families are still hurting. This story had to be told. It's Yes, it's a blemish on twin research, but these things must be exposed if you're going to prevent this from ever happening again. And I felt that as a twin, as a fraternal twin, had I been born a different time, a different place, I could have been one of those that was cruelly separated. Definitely. And why do you think the study's investigators decided to keep the separations a secret? They wanted to keep it a secret because they were afraid that if the families knew, the twins would want to meet, and that that whole issue of being a twin might affect the data. It was really blind scientific ambition, and there's no evidence that knowing you're a twin would have affected the data at all. So it really was not anything that was at all justifiable. And I think you've already expressed this already, but what was your personal and moral opinion of this decision? I think all the decisions made by those investigators were completely immoral. Just because they were within the law, there was no law that said you couldn't separate twins. But just because something is legally allowable does not mean that it can be morally justified. It is simply not right to manipulate people's lives for your own scientific goals to deny them a critical birthright. And the other thing is that let's suppose that an identical twin needed a transplant of some sort. The co-twin is the perfect donor, and yet this would have been denied to them. Now, that never happened, but it certainly was a potential. And do you ever think that this issue would be reoccurring in the modern day? I don't think it will be because we have human subjects' rights very firmly in place. Now, I can't speak to some researchers who might try to do this on the fly. That's certainly possible. Uh, But I think that it would be very, very difficult to justify. Now, in the Minnesota study of Twins Raised Apart, we did everything we could to bring twins together. When we heard about somebody who was looking for a twin, We did everything we could to try to find them, and when we did, we brought them to the university at the same time so they could meet one another. And at the same time, we told them not to exchange answers on the exams so that 
the data would not be tainted, and they took us very seriously. And I have to tell you that I mentioned this to one of the investigators on the Neubauer twin study, the Neubauer-Bernard twin study, and she said to me, well, it would have been better not to have brought them together because they might have been more alike. And I just thought, it's amazing how little remorse there is from those days. It still seems to linger. Wow. Now, what were some of the inside stories about the agency that you discussed in the book? Well, for one thing, I discussed how the researchers got very upset if they thought that too many people knew about what they were doing. And that's very odd because when you're doing an exciting project, and they were very excited about this, you want to tell colleagues, you want the world to know. The International Twin Congress was just starting up, and they would have found many, many interested people there and maybe even more twins. But they kept it all a secret because I think they sensed that something was not quite right about this. When it came time to publication, they actually thought about publishing the book in a different language so some people couldn't read it, which I find absolutely astonishing because if you have an exciting project, you want the world to read it. The idea that they were worried about lawsuits against them, they were never worried about the twins as much as themselves. And when it looked like some of the twins were meeting, they worried that there'd be lawsuits against them, and they began to look at what the protections were offered to them from their places of work. So there, oh, and then there were many attempts to dodge the media. 60 Minutes tried twice to investigate this study and expose it, and there were lots of meetings, countless meetings among the staff to try to deflect that interest and how to handle it. There were even documents I found where they tried to take out the name Louise Wise and just put in adoption agency. So there was a lot of hidden material. If you look at a book that Peter Neubauer and his son authored called Nature's Thumbprint, there are stories in there about some of the twins, but the source of those is not given. And I happen to know where they come from because I know the literature, so I know which twin stories come from which other studies. But they did not cite these properly, and they did not cite the collaborator, Dr. Bernard, nor did they mention the name of the adoption agency. I can tell you something else that is an inside story. So why did she justify separating twins? I already told you they worried about the twins competing for attention and that sort of thing. And she always said it was justified by the child development literature of the time. Well, there was no such literature that said that. No literature would say to separate twins and put them in different families. And I always wondered why she never spoke to parenting groups, you know, about her ideas. But that was all kept hidden. Now, in 1986, about uh, five years or six years after the study ended, one of the colleagues wrote a paper where he listed five studies that justified separating twins in different families. I went back and read those five studies. Not one of them provided an ounce of justification. Wow. Well, over the years, you seem to have mastered the ability to effectively convey and communicate your research. Um, This can clearly be seen in your TED Talk, your seven books, and about 250 other scientific articles that you've written. What steps can other young researchers take to master this skill of effective communication? I think the best thing to do is to speak to groups that are non-threatening. Begin that way. Speak to groups where you know that you know more than they do. So how did I begin? I spoke lots of times to mothers of twins clubs, and I did that because I needed to get twins for my research. So I went all through the Chicago and New York City areas 
And it gave me a lot of confidence. And so when I began to address more professional societies, I felt very comfortable with the material as long as you know your material and you know that you know it better than anybody else, that will serve you well. And I've also learned that if someone asks you a question you don't know the answer to, it's fine to say you don't know. The worst thing is to try to struggle with an answer that you'll come up with that really won't fit the bill. And what are some of the largest hardships that you faced as specifically a woman in research, and how have you overcome them? Quite honestly, I really have not faced any hardships as a woman except for one incident at a conference when I was on a panel with all males, and I was the only one addressed as Miss Siegel, and they were all doctor. That is the only time I ever encountered that, and I was just a first-year PhD, and I didn't really have the clout to say anything. I should have. I should have just corrected the person who introduced me and said that I'm also a doctor, just like my male uh, companions here. But other than that, my field does have a lot of women in it, and I feel that I have done as well as, as any male in my field. So I've really not experienced discrimination. Perhaps I'm just fortunate. Well, that's good to hear. And in what ways has your work been recognized, and how has that impacted your life as a researcher? Well, I've received a number of national and international awards. Here in my campus, I won an award for the best researcher out of the 26 campuses. I won the James Shields Lifetime Achievement Award for twin research from two international societies, and I was recognized by Multiple births Canada. Not that you need recognition. You know, the best recognition, quite frankly, is when I get an email from somebody who's read my books and said they really enjoyed them. And that, to me, gives me the warm glow that, that somehow an award, as wonderful it is, just doesn't give me. <laughs> I also won the William James Book Award for my book, Born Together, Reared Apart, about the Minnesota study, and that was in 2012. And that was also just a very, very gratifying experience. Well, well congratulations. Now, I want to ask, what keeps you motivated to investigate such controversial topics and challenging areas of research? These controversial areas need to be told. And as uncomfortable as they may be to investigate at times, they really let you grow and expand and blossom as a researcher, as a person, as a twin, as a professional. Writing Deliberately Divided for me was a great experience. I had wonderful highs. I had difficult lows. But ultimately, I came out ahead. And the book has gotten a lot of really good attention. I've had a lot of speaking engagements. And there's a documentary film that will be coming out in July by the BBC, a half-hour documentary that will be shown on TV stations worldwide. So I'm very, very excited about that. At any rate, these kinds of things should be investigated. And in fact, when I had a little hesitation in the beginning, I spoke to a colleague and he said, well, I write something comfortable, write something people will talk about. And that was a very, very great piece of advice. Well, that really covers one of the last questions I had. What is the largest piece of advice you would give to other aspiring young researchers? Actually, there is a piece of advice I can give, and that is to always follow your bliss. Take the research project that you love. Don't let anybody try to talk you into something else that might bring you more money or is a hot topic now. If you love it, you go for it, and you will build upon it and build upon it, and you will become an expert in that area. And going to work every day will be a sheer pleasure, as it has been for me. Well, thank you. And lastly, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? I have a website, and I will say it for you clearly and send it to you as well, Raina. 
It's doctor, so D-R, Nancy Siegel, that's S-E-G-A-L, twins.org. So again, drnancysiegeltwins.org, and I update it fairly often. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Siegel, for taking the time to be with us today. It's been fascinating to hear about your research experiences, and it was a pleasure to talk with you about your work in the fields of epigenetics and psychology. Thank you, Rain. It was a pleasure on this side as well. And thank you so much to our listeners for making the time for this conversation. You can also find past episodes and other public affairs programming at WDIY.org and on major podcast platforms. I'm Raina Malhotra, and this is WDIY 88.1 FM. Tune in next Thursday for more Lehigh Valley Discourse, and we'll see you next time on Teen Scientist.